listener production. Hi, I'm Dave Gleeson and this is These Days, the greatest moments in Australian music. As we reach the finish line of our story, we're about to examine where the Australian music scene is at now. That includes the new artists who have the benefit of technology to help them break into the industry and get their music heard around the world in the click of a button. But they've also got the downside of trying to work out how to make money when most people no longer pay for music. So Untouched is the first song that reached a million downloads ever in the history of Australian artists. I don't know how long ago it was, but I, I was able to see that it went over a billion streams. And we find that today's Australian musicians are still fueled by the local heroes who busted doors down decades ago. It's 100% paved the way for us to, to go there and, and then just be the next chapter, I guess. Let's pick up the story in the year 2000. It's a new millennium and the band signed in the wake of the grunge explosion, Powderfinger, have become national heroes. Hello, I'm Bernard Fanning. Their album Odyssey Number no. 5 featured their biggest hit, My Happiness. It's also home to a track first released as a B-side that's now an Aussie anthem. That was, of course, These Days, a song now in the National Film and Sound Archives for its significance to Australian culture. However, it nearly didn't exist. Here's Triple M's very own Matty O. Bernard Fanning was asked to write a track for a scene in the Heath Ledger movie, Two Hands. They wrote one and demoed it. However, when he slept on it, Bernard thought it wasn't good enough and wrote These Days. Powderfinger dominated Australia in the early noughties with consecutive number one albums, constant radio play and massive tours. They managed to blur the line between alternative and commercial. Here's Bernard Fanning. Without blowing my own trumpet, I, I think it comes back to the quality of the songwriting. That's... That's essentially what it is. I mean, we weren't radically reinventing anything. We were, we were making really well-structured, really melodic, hummable songs. And that really shits some people off still about Powderfinger, <laughs> to my great delight. And when Bernard Fanning released a solo album in 2005, fans suspected cracks in the band. Like their heroes, Cole Chisel, before them, Powderfinger tried to break the international market but never quite made it. Instead, they focused on interesting ways to capitalise on being the biggest band in the country, like promoting awareness of Indigenous issues. Here's Missy Higgins. Yeah, Powderfinger were just always the that really famous dude band that, you know, all the guys loved. <laughs> they were always played at pubs and um, played all the big festivals and the big day outs, and then I became quite a big fan as I got to know them all as such lovely guys. We're exploring the decade of the noughties, showcasing the greatest moments in Australian music. The 2000s era was changing the music industry with it. These were different times. Many bands had to do things differently to stand out. While alternative rock acts from the 90s continued to enjoy massive success like Powderfinger, The Living End, Grinspoon, Spiderbait and Killing Heidi, in the new millennium, Australians were also discovering new artists. City band The Vines had started live playing Nirvana and UMI covers. Before long, they'd been signed by US label Capital and recorded their debut album, Highly Evolved, in LA. Here's Matty O. The Vines were big news in the UK and US and started getting compared to the new breed of edgy rock bands like The Strokes and The White Stripes. And The Vines also became the first Australian band since Men at Work in 1983 
to feature on the cover of the American Rolling Stone. Craig from the Vines looks back. The first Letterman performance we did, that was, uh, it was pretty wild, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what it was and that's who we were, so, yeah, we can't, you know, no regrets, like Madonna said, absolutely no regrets. It was very punk and, like, a very aggressive. Sydney band Wolfmother would then channel 70s metal and rock to great acclaim worldwide. The debut was a million seller with songs like Woman and Joker and the Thief becoming festival favourites. Here's Wolfmother frontman Andrew Stockdale. I see all these other bands and I think, how do we fit into this? What is interesting about us? You know, there's so many talented people. But I think essentially it's just the songs, it's the it's the one plus one equals three, it's the unknown quantity that when we get up there and we play these songs, something magical happens. While Wolfmother defined a great moment in Australian music, the rock revival continued with Melbourne's Jet, who also signed directly to an American label, smartly making them an international priority. Hi, we're Jet. Discovered in a tiny Melbourne pub, their mix of yesterday and today would be exactly the right sound at the right time. Jet frontman Nick Sester says he wrote their 2003 hit Are You Gonna Be My Girl to expand their audience beyond just beer-drinking blokes in pubs. And the kind of pubs we were going to, there were no girls at, which is pretty frustrating. So basically we were just trying to bring girls back into the places where we, <laughs> where we were. And, um, and it was more about the sort of call response thing was what I was interested in, songs like um, My Generation. And the music is just more a vehicle to be able to do that around. Our logic was... Girls are only going to come into the pubs if they can dance in them. So we wanted to write a song that girls could dance to, in a nutshell. And then Are You Gonna Be My Girl went global when it was used on an ad to sell a new contraption known as the iPod. Once upon a time, having your songs on TV was seen as selling out. In the new millennium, it was a smart and lucrative marketing move. Good work, fellas. And in an era where reality TV started to clog up the charts, local music fans wanted something less manufactured. From Perth, Eskimo Joe's 2006 album Black Fingernails Red Wine propelled them to the big league, hitting number one and going four times platinum. The band channeled some Australian heroes for inspiration. Here's their singer, Cav Templey. We were really inspired by this idea of, you know, the classic Australian widescreen sound and, and so bands like In Excess and Ice House were, were really big for us. And that was the sonic landscape, but just the, the sense of mystery that these guys managed to, you know, whip up in their in their music, which I just, I remember listening to it as a kid and just thinking this is the most mysterious music I'd ever heard. But it just had this, uh, we were trying to kick against the idea that you didn't have to cringe at our culture. You know, you could actually embrace it and put it into the music and that could be exotic and cool. And soon the remaining members of In Excess found themselves becoming Eskimo Joe fans. And Cav tells us that led to getting a very interesting proposal. Chris Murphy, the manager, who may he rest in peace, cornered me backstage and said, this is what's going to happen. In Excess are going to tour America. You're going to sing for In Excess. Eskimo Joe are going to support them. Uh, and it's going to be huge. And I, and I just said, well, look, with all due respect, I mean, that's amazing. I, I would love to sing some songs with In Excess, but... I've kind of got my own band and that's also physically impossible to go and play a stadium tour where not only do I play the support band but then sing for three hours of In Excess songs. And so, uh, yeah, it got a bit heated there for a minute with in classic Chris Murphy style and my manager had to step in between me and him and, and then funnily enough they stopped turning up backstage to our gigs after that. Meanwhile, more female singer-songwriters were getting well-deserved and maybe long-overdue attention. 
Casey Chambers crossed from the country charts to the mainstream with the number one hit, Not Pretty Enough. And from Melbourne, a teenager called Missy Higgins found herself in a bidding war after one of her earliest songs showcased her unique voice. Missy would sign with John Watson's company Eleven, who promptly told the teenager she could still go on the European backpacking trip she'd planned before this music thing took off. They told me to just take my time and develop my songwriting as much as possible. And um, I remember they bought me a little keyboard and um, an A-track. That was just the coolest present I'd ever got. Like I put that in the little shed that I was living in out the back of mum and dad's house and I spent just all day every day in there recording and experimenting with layering vocals and making compositions. And, um, yeah, I got to develop my own sound and my own sense of identity and that was just so important. That really led me to, yeah, I think being able to go out there and have a stronger body of work than I would have otherwise if I'd just kind of dived headfirst into it. Missy's longtime manager, John Watson, sees her career trajectory heading the same way as Paul Kelly. He says Missy has become a reference point for other artists. I love that so many younger artists seem to have been influenced by her, particularly in an era where um, there have been some really awful things that have come to light about the music industry. Um, I think that the way Missy has been able to have a career on her own terms, including walking away from it completely for a few years and going back to uni. Um, You know, she has built a life which includes a career, and that is very, very hard to do in an industry where most people build a career and then struggle to have a life. And Ella Hooper says Missy has reminded local artists they don't need to change their accent to add an American twang. She's always had the courage of her convictions. You know, she had long, luscious, beautiful hair the night before the Scar film clip. She chopped it off. Management would have been loving that. You know, she looked how she wanted to look. She sang how she wanted to sing in a, in, in a quite a broad and proud Australian accent. That hadn't really been done. So, you know, Killing Heidi came out in a way and broke a few moulds and did their crazy space rock thing. And, like, I think that was really helpful and healthy for young women in some ways. And then Missy came and did so much she did different and more of breaking moulds and being a strong young Australian woman and just completely apologetic in a much more authentic kind of unvarnished way. And I just love that about it. The 2000s decade meant artists needed to do things differently than at any other time in the history of Australian music. The greatest defining moments came from breakthroughs, but also breakups. The Sunsets Tour will be Powderfinger's last ever run of shows. Now in 2011, Australia had just dealt with Powderfinger splitting, then Silverchair announced they were going on an indefinite hiatus. That was a polite way of saying they no longer wanted to work together. And in their final interviews, Daniel made no secret of the fact that he hated touring. I don't think there is a good element except for playing, really. The rest is just doing what you've got to do in order to get to the next city. It's all, it's <laughs> nothing like what you think it's going to be when you're a kid. It's boring <laughs> and tedious. The former manager, John Watson, said Daniel Johns had tried to split the band up several times. He was very serious about stopping doing it after Neon Ballroom. Uh, and then he was very serious about stopping doing it after Diorama, and then he was very serious again about stopping it after Young Modern. With Young Modern, Silverchair became the first Australian band to have their first five albums reach number one. The single, Straight Lines, was not only number one here, it returned Silverchair to the top five of the American radio chart. Straight Lines had been written by Daniel with Julian Hamilton of electronic duo The Presets. 
Here's Kim Moyes from the presets. Jules was playing with him in Silverchair a few years ago when they did the Across the Night tour. After that, we both played in the Dissociatives. He's a great guy and a really key musician. He's always been a really big fan of what we do and, you know, and also... (laughs) He's Daniel Johns. Johns. Hey, I'm not going to pretend like it it doesn't matter anymore. Featuring Daniel Johns from Silverchair. Pretty soon, the presets were headlining festivals and selling hundreds and thousands of albums. We used to play to people, like 20 people in little clubs in Sydney and everyone used to stand there not knowing what to do. And I guess organically we've kind of gotten to a point where our music's on commercial radio and everyone's coming to our shows and it's... We are officially the hottest act in Australia. John Watson, who now manages the duo, says it was a turning point for dance music winning over rock fans. The presets represented a moment where pub culture really took over the middle of youth culture um, in a way that it maybe hadn't done up until that point. Um, It was a really wonderful moment for for Julian and Kim, while at the same time being quite disorientating because they'd always been avowed indie kids kind of, you know, that had a few years of being largely sort of ignored over in the kind of cult in a city area and all of a sudden, um, you know, they were playing to gigantic fields of people going off to my people. And as music was transforming, some artists wanted to change with it, not fight against it. Australian bands quickly adapted to the new methods people used to consume music. And it meant they could get their songs overseas immediately thanks to the internet making the world smaller. The Veronicas signed one of the last big international record deals. They were also early adopters of social media platform MySpace. Remember that? Here's Jess. The mid-2000s was, it was still such a playground for music. It was just so liberating. It, it felt it felt like we were fully supported as artists and it was just, I, I, don't, I don't even know, it felt multidimensional. It felt unreal, surreal and... I think that the artistry and support that we had financially and from the people that were involved early in our career, um, for us, it's just, we, we just feel really lucky to have launched, you know, with, with such a powerhouse, um, at such a powerhouse time for music. The writing on the wall for people paying for music can be traced back to 1999. While people had burned CDs in the past, the internet meant songs could be uploaded, then downloaded for free. Then came Napster. Here's Matty O. For a few years in the early noughties, Napster users could illegally download pretty much the entire history of music. Big albums started leaking online and after lawsuits, Napster shut down in 2001, but the damage had been done. By 2003, the iTunes store started selling music digitally and in a few years, the rise of the iPhone meant you had a portable music device in your pocket. Jess from the Veronicas has witnessed music go full circle from vinyl to CD to digital and now back to vinyl. I think Lisa and I just take an approach of complete, you know, openness and flexibility when it comes to how music's received. You know, for us, we were one of the very first of five bands on MySpace um, way back. And then, you know, as the internet has evolved, you see, you know, CDs no longer exist and vinyl becomes valuable and then, you know, selling more vinyl than ever. And it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty wild ride and I love it. I love the way that, you know, music's meant to be heard. And if there's ways, new ways to hear it, you know, I, I'm here for it. In 2006, we saw the emergence of a real game changer, streaming. So you could listen to music either free with ads or for a small monthly fee. Record companies who'd been bleeding money since the death of CDs suddenly made a fortune out of their back catalogues. The only losers in all of this were the artists. 
Apart from the top-tier superstars who receive billions of streams, royalties for most are minuscule. So how do you get noticed in the modern world, where attention spans are short and 60,000 songs are released on Spotify each day? Manager John Watson has some advice. The artists who are breaking through are those who know how to build and communicate with an audience. You know, they don't view stuff on Instagram or, you know, TikTok or whatever as eating their greens. They don't view it as homework, as something they've kind of got to suck it up and do. They view it as an opportunity to communicate with people in exactly the same way that 80s artists viewed music videos, you know, or 70s artists viewed concerts. This is how I connect with my audience. This is how I express myself as an artist. And if you go right back to the start of Cultures or right back to the start of Midnight Oil, it's exactly the same, but you're just doing it 100 people the first time you go to Newcastle, 200 people the second time you go to Newcastle, 300 people the third time you go to Newcastle. Now that is concertina down into seconds. 100 people just got served up the, you know, the TikTok um, thing and they shared it and now there's 200 people a second later and 300 people another second later. It's amazing watching that turbocharged power of a crowd. A few Australian acts are in the Billion Stream Club. There's the big pop acts like Sia, Five Sauce and Tones and I, plus acts like influential free mental rock group Tame Impala. One of the earliest Australians to reach the magic mark was Melbourne musician Gautier. Hey, this is Wally DeBecker from Gautier. He wrote somebody that I used to know in a shed in Victoria and he tried several duet partners but couldn't find the right chemistry. Then Kiwi singer Kimbra got behind the microphone. She brought an intensity and I guess the... um I think the edge that I hoped the song would have, I guess the song, both the male and female in the song uh, are not very coherent narrators, I think you'd say, in that um, they, they have a lot of mixed feelings and there's a lot of confusion in the sort of things they're covering and what's happened in this, this busted relationship. So I think Kimber brought that kind of um, angst and multiplicity through her voice and interpretation of a lyric that, that made it have that edge. The quirky song with an equally unusual and lo-fi video was number one in Australia in 2011. It wasn't until the next year the song would spend five weeks at number one in the UK and then eight weeks on top in the US. Here's Cat Lynch. This video has been viewed about a billion times and while Gautier originally declined to monetize the account, he recently changed his mind, which I do not blame him. He's got to live at some point and the song has actually enabled the perfectionist to work on a follow-up that we're actually yet to hear. I'll be very interested to hear what it is. John Watson was there when Silverchair cracked the US and says the road to success had been fast-tracked thanks to technology. The same basic process still occurs, which is your friend tells you about something really cool and you go and check it out. But the point is that now social media and the internet turbocharges that process in a way that's really impossible to imagine until you've seen it up close. You know, it took basically a year from Silverchair first getting played on the Nomad competition to them, you know, getting serious blanket airplay in America. That same process for Gautier 16 years later happened within the space of a couple of months and now it would happen within the space of a couple of days. Even music industry veterans are adapting to new technology. Streaming data allows artists and managers to see exactly where in the world people are listening to their music. That can be extremely useful when planning a tour. Michael Chug, who manages Lime, Cordial and Shepherd, says once you get into the tens or hundreds of millions of streams, there's money to be made. As a world-famous agent once said to me about five years ago, streams don't sell tickets, but it's incredible to have that data. If you hit TikTok with the right 15, 20-second grab, 
you got 25 million people in 20 minutes. It's an amazing world, but you still got to have great music. It's still about the songs. In this episode, we're exploring how the changing digital age impacted the music landscape. This was evolution at a faster pace than anything that had happened before it. Chris Cheney says he often ponders what life would be like if The Living End was starting out as a band now rather than in the 90s. I really don't know, and I tend to think perhaps not because there's a lot of good bands out there writing really great music and no one's hearing it. And that's, you know, I mean, that's a can of worms right there. People's lives are moving too fast. They don't stop and listen to anything more than 30 or 40 seconds, the majority of people. So just thinking... You know, you can be very arrogant and naive and think, well, you know, we're, we're a great band and we write good songs and we, we, we play well on stage. But it's just not about that anymore. I mean, it is to a certain extent, but to really break through, yeah, you need, you need that um, social media kind of presence. And Ella Hooper has tips for new bands on how to navigate the modern world of music. Highlight your uniqueness. Don't try and like fake some wacky sound or affectation that's not you, but try and dig down and find what is in you that is slightly unique. Then shine the spotlight on that because that will help you stand out and that will also show you stuff about yourself. And today's artists are learning from the mistakes of the bands who came before them. Brisbane surf punk group Dune Rats say they've had to adapt to the industry. That means touring to keep the money rolling in and keeping an eye on where it's going. Here's Danny from the Junies. I mean, look, I would love it if CDs were still a thing and I could buy a crib in Beverly Hills off the back of that. But having said that as well, I think that the power is put more into the artists now as well. I think that, yeah, you have to be pretty smart with how you're going to make money. Like merchandise obviously is a big one um, and live touring. And we're pretty lucky we're a live band. We're, we're a band that... that loves going out on the road and, and working our asses off that way. Um, it's kind of who we are. But I, I think as well, it, it is something that you should be smart with your deal that you're making. And that's super important. It's just being smart with how you run your band. And I know we're three stoner dudes with long hair that uh, might not always seem like the sort of thing, but we've got smart management around us that have been there from the start. And so I think that that's the, the big difference is that, you know, yeah, the artist gets a little bit more power now about how you want to project yourself. Perth group Spacey Jane's drummer Kieran Lama, who also co-manages the band, says it's common sense to be aware of the business side of the music business. I sort of feel as though we got a look in because mm. one of our songs was going a little bit viral on Spotify, you know, and that sort of built a fan base for us before there was a significant degree of industry support and stuff. And it means that, you know, you get to create that narrative of growth yourself and you don't have to rely on spending all this money on promoting stuff in one way or another. It's just, it does feel a little bit like luck and good fortune, but then also, of course, the hard work and the effort that goes into mm. producing and releasing this stuff. It's like, that's what got us over the line is what it feels like. But As we head to the modern day, Australian music has adapted to the times, but it hasn't forgotten where it came from. We've highlighted a lot of great moments in Australian music and it almost feels like the music industry is turning full circle. Taking inspiration from Bon Scott, now in female form, and ACDC's brash Aussie attitude reappearing within the Dune Rats. Here's Lisa from the Veronicas. Amy from Emma and the Sniffers, to see that rock and roll spirit kept alive by a pint-sized pocket rocket female is like so inspiring. I, it's everything that embodies Australian rock and roll and the spirit of like 60s, 70s Aussie rock at its finest. And it's, it's beautiful to see it alive and well. 
with her. DJ Lude remixed Men at Works Down Under for the dance floor. The man who wrote the song, Colin Hay, not only approved of the remake, he provided new vocals. I wouldn't say they introduced Down Under to a streaming generation because a lot of people have been streaming Down Under for a long time. But I think it was more the whole, you know, the, the TikTok, the TikTok generation, if you like, you know, that short form video that really it caused the whole thing to go nuts, you know? And Danny from The Journey says, being compared to ACDC has worked for them when they tour overseas. I remember every time we go to Germany, it's like, ACDC! <laughs> and we're like, yeah, well, well, look, we're not quite ACDC, but if you like them, come to the show. Like, oh, but I think that that's really in our pocket because of what ACDC are. They're just this unapologetic Aussie band that are beyond, like, you know, rock and roll and stuff. That's that they're... they're, they're popular across every country, like no matter what language you speak. And even while the modern industry can be tough, there are still major success stories. James Keogh was a footballer and gardener before he focused on his love of music and renamed himself Vance Joy. Hey, this is Vance Joy. In 2012, he took his ukulele into a studio in Melbourne owned by Chris Chaney of The Living End. He left with a song called Riptide, which cost $700 to record. It landed him an international record deal and he hit the road to promote the record. That included playing Riptide to radio station staff who had no idea who he was. Here's Vance. A guy that was just sitting in his cubicle who, like, there must have been an email that didn't get through and he didn't even expect me, but I kind of sat in the cubicle and I sang in Riptide and, like, another love song, which was called From Afar, which is about loving someone, you know, you can't have. And it was, like, just funny to sing it to this dude, like, on his lunch break. Um, so I did things like that. And it was, like, a, you know, a few years of kind of doing... You know, I did all the boardrooms and I did, you know, radio stations and um, it all kind of pays off. It's a, it's a different system over there, like where the radio stations, especially in the first four or five years when I was, or, you know, even until kind of recently, and it still happens now, the radio stations have such a big impact on the way people receive music and they have a lot of power. So it's, you got to visit every single one, you know, even the tiny one in the little mountain town with a small listenership, it's like, it, it really pays off and it's worth investing the time to meet the people so all that work means that riptide now has one and a half billion streams on spotify but vance says it was a long haul i think at that point you know it's funny you lose all kind of sense of like what numbers mean at a certain point you know i remember when i put riptide on soundcloud uh, it was like the first thing i ever put out in in terms of like under the name vance joy and i think in a week it had a thousand listens and i was like wow that's that's crazy and then, you know, one day I was at South by Southwest and, you know, I, I, I saw that Riptide had 40,000 listens in a day and I was like, oh man, it's happening. You know, it's like, it's exploding. Those numbers are so small compared to a billion. But for me, it's like, I noticed that it's just connected and it's kind of hasn't really slowed down too much. Like it's, it's kind of kept being listened to. It's, it hasn't faded away, I guess, into the background. Like, and that can happen with songs and it doesn't, who knows why that happens? You know, I'm just... I'm glad that it kind of hasn't disappeared and, you know, and for a lot of people, maybe that's the only song of mine they know, but uh, I really appreciate the longevity of that song. It's been about, I guess, 10 years since it came out. So 10 years is a fair distant time. It'd be cool if it kept uh, ticking away for another 10, but who knows. Vance has sold records both physically and digitally and has 18 million monthly listeners on Spotify. However, he says there's still one very old-fashioned way of seeing the impact his music has had. I guess for me, it's really just about waiting till you play a show and then you see how how well absorbed your songs have become and how how excited your fans are, and um, that's when it kind of for me I can really 
put all the things that I read and see on charts or whatever, uh, and I can really kind of see it in action. I'm Dave Gleeson, and that brings our story up until the present day. These Days has turned the pages on so many defining moments in Australia's rich music history. I'm proud to have been able to share these stories with you, and it still blows my mind that I'm part of this incredible industry. My thanks to all the other artists that have featured in this series, and all the managers, promoters, and industry legends that took time to share their story in the big bad book of Australian music. It was written by Cameron Adams and produced by Georgie Page. Audio production by Mike Santos. You can listen to all the episodes in this series or share it with your friends. Thanks for listening to These Days. Listener.